I'm Rebecca Shelton on the women's shepherding team, and uh, I too am a sinner in deep need of grace. So hear the word of the Lord, please. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God and a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall do no work, you nor your son or your daughter nor your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Hear the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rebecca. We have been um, working our way through the book of Exodus um, from the perspective of looking at the life of Moses. I said this last week. We had um, last week and this week two weeks to consider what is without a doubt, the most confusing part of Christianity, and that is, how do I relate to God's law and commands? Um, I said this in the first service, but yeah, in so many ways, this is, I mean, I, I feel like just kind of scratching the surface, and that you may leave with a lot of questions unanswered in a lot of these areas. Um, and I'm just, I'm just struggling. I mean, ever since Thursday, spending time with the Fords, um, my typical, I guess, sermon prep and study time was interrupted, and that's okay. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, for me, for y'all, um, that the Lord will do his work through his word, which is always true. Um, maybe I just feel the need for that more today, even as we hear that thunder in the passage that Rebecca just read of God's holiness coming down on the mountain and that thundering 
So let me pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we know that an awareness of your holiness, which the Israelites felt at Mount Sinai, um, is meant to lead to a confession of sin and need of grace through which you always draw near to the humble and you give grace to those who are aware of how much they need it. So I pray that your spirit will do that work in us this morning and that you'll use your word, which is living and active, that by the power of your spirit can not only bring us from death to life, but can continue the good work that you've begun in us, maturing and growing us, anchoring our hearts more in the hope that we've been given. So send forth your word to accomplish your purpose. I pray it will not return void. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think one of the reasons there's so much confusion over how we are supposed to relate to the laws and commandments that God gives us starts with the confusion over what was going on in the Old Testament. Namely, how exactly were people saved in the Old Testament? How are people saved before Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again? I remember as a young kid even asking a Sunday school teacher this, how were people saved before Jesus died on the cross? And the answer I was given, which is completely incorrect, is people in the Old Testament were saved by obeying the Ten Commandments and offering sacrifices. That's not true. Just so we're clear, and the New Testament's clear, the Apostle Paul is the clearest on this, there's only always been one way of salvation throughout redemptive history, by grace through faith. And Paul hammers this point um, in Galatians 3, really the whole book of Galatians, we just finished studying in our men's Bible study. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is a direct quote from Genesis 15, 6. Counted to him as righteousness, translation, he was saved. He was saved by placing his faith in God and in God's word given to him, not in himself, his own works, or anything other than God. And so Paul goes on to say, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons or children of Abraham. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous only and always have lived by faith. The righteous have never been declared righteous in God's sight because of their works. An easy way to translate this is that the Old Testament saints were saved by trusting God's promise, looking ahead in the future for the coming Redeemer. We are saved the exact same way, just looking back at the Redeemer who has already come. One and only one way of salvation. And so maybe this can clarify a little bit on the front end. Michael Horton says, therefore, we need to understand law does not equal Old Testament, while grace or gospel equal New Testament. Law refers to any command from Genesis to Revelation. Gospel, which literally translates good news, refers to any place in either Testament where the promise of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is found. The law tells us what we ought to do the gospel tells us what God has done for us. Now, you may say, okay, I get it. I already have that. But as we've been working through our study of Exodus, you may say, I've been reading Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and I am so confused because there are so many weird laws. For example, Leviticus 19.19, 19, God says, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. <laughs> Every one of us in here is wearing garments made of different kinds of material. So how do we make sense of different commands given at different time in, different, in redemptive history? Well, 
Our own confession of faith, chapter 19, talks about the law of God, and it distinguishes three types of laws that God has given. And one type that we just finished looking at in our study of Hebrews is the ceremonial law. These are all the laws that have to do with clean versus unclean, holy versus unholy. And those laws no longer apply to our lives. In other words, they're no longer binding because all of the ceremonial laws which kind of explained and guarded and highlighted the sacrificial system, were completely fulfilled in Jesus. Once he offered himself as the sinless sacrifice, Lamb of God, that was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The ceremonial law is now over. So that doesn't apply to believers now on this side of the cross. Another type of law in the Old Testament given to God's people was the civil law. The civil law was given um, as a means of explaining to Israel, once I make you a nation and no longer a slave people, here's how you're to live and relate to one another as my chosen people, as a theocracy. Those no longer apply either because we are now a kingdom of priests and a holy nation sent out among the whole world. There is no Christian nation. The United States is not a Christian nation. There's no Christian nation. We are members of the kingdom of God and our citizenship is in heaven. So all the laws that would fall in the civil camp, um, those are done. Those applied at a different time in redemptive history. Now there's lots of wisdom that we can still glean from the ceremonial and civil laws that God would give, but those are no longer binding on our daily life. Now the last type of law that we are going to look at today and that the Ten Commandments falls into is known as the moral law of God. The moral law of God teaches us the difference between good and evil, um, what is right and wrong, and is primarily a means to reveal to us God's holy character and how we should love God and love our neighbor. And it's this moral law that is still binding on the lives of believers that we are still called to live in and out of. This is what Jesus means when he says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's referring to any commandment that falls into the bucket of the moral law of God. Now, the moral law in the Old Testament was summarized in these 10 words, the 10 commandments given to Moses. In the New Testament, Jesus says, those 10 are summarized in two, love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul shrinks it down even more in Galatians 5.14 and says the whole law is fulfilled in one word, Love your neighbor as yourself. And so today I want us to think, as this may be clear as mud, the different types and uses and forms, I want us to think about how the moral law should affect our lives as God's redeemed and chosen people. And the first thing we notice, even thinking about our brothers and sisters, the Israelites, redeemed from slavery in Egypt, is that when God gave them his holy law, it was meant to function as a guide that showed them how to love God and love their neighbor well. First thing, we said this last week, I hammered this over and over and over again. Grace always goes before obedience. So before God ever says, don't murder, don't make a graven image, verses one and two, God spoke this gospel, these words, I am the Lord your God, who has already brought you out of the land of slavery in Egypt. I have already redeemed you, therefore, as my free, chosen, treasured possession. Here's how you are to live for my glory and for your good. Have no other gods before me. Martin Luther said, this is the commandment of all commandments. 
Martin Luther said, you never break a single command without first breaking this one. In other words, I never lie unless in that moment I've already made my opinion, my reputation, what you think of me, a guide more significant than the one true guide. The first command, have no other gods before me. Don't worship graven images. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Start your week with rest, remembering God's good provision for you. Honor your parents. Family is the foundational unit of any healthy society. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. There is so much beauty and wisdom in these commands. And commentators point out, and Jesus unpacks in the New Testament, mainly in the Sermon on the Mount, that these commands, even the ones that are the simple negatives, don't murder, also imply you're not simply to not murder your neighbor, but you're to actively work for their good and their flourishing in every way. Don't bear false witness doesn't just mean don't lie about your neighbor, but Paul says in Ephesians 4, speak graciously, use your words as a blessing. Don't just focus on not lying and bearing false witness. When he says, do not steal, Deuteronomy 15 says that you're never to have a grudging thought in your heart, but if anyone is ever in need, you're to remember that your entire life is based on God's mercy, so you're to be open-handed to anyone that comes to you in need of anything. Now consider how striking these commands would have been for the Israelites. Their complete identity before this was as a slave people. Translation, they had no rights whatsoever. So under Pharaoh's law, Pharaoh considered himself God. He could do whatever he wanted to with them. God says, let's get it straight. I alone am the one true living God. I am the only authority. No human being can ever claim ultimate authority over another human being. Period. End of story. You were used as property. You were made to work and you were exploited only for the gain and good of others. Under my law, all of my image bearers are going to be allowed to rest. They're never going to be exploited in that manner. Under Pharaoh's law, genocide was carried out. Family could be destroyed. God says, under my law, every human being is a precious image bearer, worthy of respect, dignity, and protection. You must protect human life at all costs, no matter what your culture and society says. Under Pharaoh's law, the weak and the poor had no legal protection whatsoever against lying or theft. God says, under my law, Integrity and impartiality in the judicial system is absolutely required. In other words, these laws, these commands would have felt like a declaration of liberation. God's people would have been so excited to have these wise and beautiful laws given to them to guide how they were to live and flourish as a newly redeemed slave people. As Americans, my concern is that we often hear law, command, obedience, duty as like bad things that restrict our freedom. And if that's true of you, if you at least can have some honesty and say, yeah, that's true, that's how I feel and hear that, then first just know that that that, that is completely out of touch with a biblical worldview. But then secondly, God may be saying, hey, in light of that, if you think that good and just and holy laws are restrictive of your freedom, then I want you to go on a mission trip to a third world country that doesn't have just laws, that doesn't enforce any sort of judicial system or protection for the vulnerable and the weak. And I think it will radically change your mind and your perspective for how you think about laws and commands in your life. I've had the privilege of doing this a few times. 
when we first started this OP site, a group of us um, went to Uganda, and it was one of the saddest, darkest, most heartbreaking experiences I've ever had. It really, I mean, it took me a good six months to a year to even try to come to terms with what I saw as we visited um, children that were imprisoned. They made a law, it's illegal to beg, so any kid that was caught begging for food, they would just take them to prison with no central booking system, so their family may never even find them again. And to say the conditions were awful is not even remotely close to reality of how bad it was. And so our team one night um, went to dinner, and we rode in a van across Kampala. Kampala is the capital of Uganda. It was built with an infrastructure infrastructure to handle 200,000 people, and there's 1.8 million people there now. It's just a little overcrowded. Um, most of the traffic laws and other laws are just mere suggestions, and we would hear stories about how kind of their taxi service, which is guys on these boda-boda motorcycles, um, the people were constantly getting taken down alleys and robbed and mugged, and how they thought it was okay to rob foreigners, but if they robbed another Ugandan, they would drag them out in the street and just beat them half to death, which we actually witnessed one day when we were there. Well, even after hearing all these stories, one of the guys on our team was like, hey, man, if you're going to have the full Ugandan experience, y'all need to ride Boda Bodas. And I'm like, terrible idea. We're 25 minutes from the house. I have no idea how to get there. I can't speak the language. And we've just heard all these terrible stories. But I was trying that hard. So I'm like, sure, I'm not going to like vote against it, even though I was scared to death. So we hop on, right, like all seven or eight of our guys. And within 90 seconds of leaving the restaurant, it's like I don't see another person in our group. And I am praying and my heart rate is out of control at this moment. And I'm like, Lord, I don't even know what's about to happen. It's so dark. I don't know where we're going. Maybe two or three minutes later, we come to this massive um, like traffic circle. And it's like crazy with cars like banging into each other. And I look about the distance from here to our door. And this other guy on our team from Atlanta named Brett, he makes eye contact with me, and, and we, you can tell we're both feeling the same thing. Like, we are utterly terrified. And so he just looks at me, and he just goes, hey, man. And I'm like, hey, like, I hope we make it, right? And so thankfully, by God's sovereign mercy, we make it back to the house. But quickly after getting there, and we're like all hugging each other, and that was a terrible idea, and we were never doing that again. We're like, wait a minute, two of our guys aren't here. Oh, my gosh, where are they? We don't know what to do, how we can get them. And so we're kind of like praying, and also one of the guys who's on the team there is like trying to make calls and figure out what we could do. And then shortly after that, we, we see one of the Boda Bodas kind of puttering up the hill, um, bringing Brad Groves, one of our elders. And we're like, dude, are you okay? What happened? And he's like, well, yeah, this guy turned off down this little dark alleyway. Brad, who used to be a Secret Service agent, thinks that he's about to rob him, so he starts to put a pressure hold, smashing the dude's nose in, and the poor fella just ran out of gas. So I don't know how much salt and light Brad was in that moment. But <laughs> the point being, as much as I hate traffic and I love efficiency, that completely reoriented my perspective of having traffic laws and cops that will pull you over if you don't stop at red lights. The point being, the moral law of God is not a restriction to our freedom. It is meant to be a guide or guardrails that actually enable us to flourish and experience what we are created to enjoy. And that's one of the primary uses of God's law, that it is meant to function as a guide. Another use of God's moral law that I just referenced essentially is that his moral law helps restrain sin in a society. 
So even in a society that claims to know nothing about God, if they punish people for murder or for theft, that actually helps restrain sin and enable human flourishing. And so Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his 1983 Templeton Prize Address offered this summary of the explanation for the horrors of Soviet communism. He says, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. If you visit societies that don't have just laws that reflect the moral heart of God, you're not going to have flourishing. Evil is going to run rampant. Paul even goes on to say that every single image bearer, even if they haven't grown up in the church and haven't been given the Ten Commandments, that they still bear witness in their conscience that there is a moral law that governs the universe. Romans 2, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so, two ways that we see God's law functions as a guide for how to love him and love our neighbor, and it functions to restrain evil to a degree in society. But the main use that I want us to think about and focus on and that most theologians say is the the use that we need the most on this side of heaven is that God's moral law is meant to function as a mirror that reflects to us our sinfulness and shows us how much we need a Savior. Sadly, the main point that should have happened when the Israelites paid attention to God's good commands is the first thing they should have become aware of is how far short they fall and how much in need of grace they are. And then as a result of experiencing grace, they should have then, as Jesus says, those who are forgiven much, love much, they should have been a light to the nations and a holy people. Here's how Keller explains it in the New Testament. He says, all the rules of God's law hung on these two principles. First, the law requires a heart and mind that are totally submitted to and absorbed in God alone. Second, it requires that we must meet the needs of others with all the speed, eagerness, energy, and joy with which we meet our own. This is one of the most convicting sentences I've ever read in my life. He says, how staggering these principles are. They reflect both the holiness of God and the fundamental debt we owe the one who gave us everything. What Jesus is doing here is he's seeking to humble us with the love that God requires so we will be willing to receive the love that God offers. See, the law primarily is meant to give us a knowledge of sin by showing us how much we need God's grace and driving us in repentance and faith to our Savior. Michael Horton explains it this way. In other words, the purpose of the law is to remind us how wicked we are. So the law comes to tell us there is no one who does good, not even one, before the pure eyes of him who can see filthiness in the things we consider pure and holy. The one who trusts in his own righteousness knows who the wicked are, the homosexuals, feminists, pornographers, secular humanists, abortionists, and so on. But if our Lord was right in his Sermon on the Mount, we are all adulterers, fornicators, murderers, false witnesses, thieves, covetous, false worshipers, blasphemers, and self-seekers. Paul assures us that the law locks us all up in the same jail cell together, 
with common criminals, regardless of how much we may protest in defense of our own godliness. And what Horton is referring to there is the heartbreaking reality that when Jesus showed up, instead of finding um, the descendants of Abraham as the most gracious and humble and merciful, the most committed to meeting the physical felt needs of any neighbor with energy, eagerness, and joy, what did he find? He found a people whose lives were characterized by hypocrisy, pride, and arrogance because they said, we have the law of God. Therefore, we are better than others. They were completely blind to how much they needed God's grace. It was so bad that Jesus said this. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law. This is Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when they have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. I put in your bulletin for suggested resources. I said for homework, go read Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew 7, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments. And he shows the unbelievable depth that these commands are meant to reach into our hearts. He says in chapter 5, you heard it said of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says to someone, you fool, will be liable to hell. Right after that is when he said, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but if you look at someone with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's why he tells the story in Luke 18 of the tax collector that stood up and, um, you know, was in the, the Pharisee that stood up in the, in the temple and said, God, thank you that I'm so much better than every, everybody else. Right? I don't commit adultery and I tithe and I do this and I do that, which in his mind were factually true. And Jesus says what this tax collector over here didn't even feel worthy to lift his head. He just cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man went home a justified, redeemed, beloved child of God, not the Pharisee, who was blind to his need for grace. This is why when C.S. Lewis was asked, hey, do you like the Sermon on the Mount? He said, I like it as much as a man can like getting smashed in the face with a sledgehammer. Because the Sermon on the Mount shows, oh my gosh, Lord, I am in such deep need of your grace. And so again, Mike Horton says, therefore we must make a conscious effort to see God's commandments, not as stones that we throw at a secular society, but first and foremost, as witness to our unfaithful record and thus highlighting our need of grace. In Isaiah 52, verse 5, Paul quotes this in Romans 2, 24. He says, because of your hypocrisy and pride as those within the church, the name of God is blasphemed by those outside when they observe the way you live. Unless we say, well, golly, they must have been a bunch of clowns and hypocrites and this and that. People have reached out to me in the past month to say, hey, I want you to know in light of all the arguments that's taking place, primarily in my neighborhood around potential rezoning and are kids going to not go to Myers Park and go to Providence or South Mech, based on people in your church that I've observed both in meetings and on social media, I will never visit your church. Now that's an opportunity for me to say, 
well, I'm sorry. And if you come, this is a community of sinners. No one here claims to be perfect. It's extremely nuanced, I know. Jesus says that if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And if we are known primarily as people who just throw stones at others, instead of as people that are overwhelmed and melted by the grace that we've received and are quick and eager to be open-handed and outward-facing to those in need. Like, if, if that's not the case, we need to repent before it's too late. The more we look at God's moral law, or the more you maybe look at the culture and want to quickly condemn how wicked and sinful they are, you need to ask God, by your Holy Spirit, drive me in these moments to Jesus. Help me to see him high and lifted up, the only righteous one in all of human history. When the rich young ruler said, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's why on the cross, in John 19, it says, after Jesus knowing that all righteousness had been accomplished, he declared, it is finished. To the degree that you see it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished, his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Until that reality moves out of your head and sinks into your heart, you're only going to be a blind guide and a hypocrite. But to the degree that it sinks down deep into your heart, it's going to lead to worship. It's going to lead to a posture of compassion. It doesn't mean that you never take positions and it's okay to have positions about school zoning and all that other stuff. But that's not what our identity is based on. It'll enable us to be less quick to blurt out our opinion on social media. What a complete and utter crap show social media is. And instead, find someone that's your enemy and say, I'd love to hear more about your position. What if we just sit down and have a cup of coffee? Maybe the Lord will open my eyes to where I'm blind. And let me tell you something. I'm saying this as, I mean, the chief sinner in this area. I mean, I've been so bad at this historically. I've been so quick to just want to look at something in someone else's life and immediately black and white determine why they're wrong and I'm right and condemn them so that not only was I not a safe person, I mean, I was unbelievably threatening and hurtful and a bully. And the Lord has been hammering me, like C.S. Lewis says, with a sledgehammer in the face of how much I need his grace. So much so that someone on our staff who loves me and was gracious last week said, hey, you're a lot kinder than you used to be. Seeing the change in your life helps me believe in miracles. <laughs> Which I guess is a compliment. <laughs> it's better than she's like, I read Matthew 23, 15. I think that you're a, you know, a child of hell based on your behavior. <laughs> to the degree that God's law functions as a mirror driving us to Jesus and we see him declaring, not only it is finished, but Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Our hearts slowly but surely will be melted by his grace so that we will both be eager and excited to seek to keep his law in loving him and loving our neighbors well out of an overflow of gratitude, not as a means of trying to earn merit or even prove ourselves more righteous than others. And so that needs to be our prayer. That's going to be my prayer, that God will do that, that he will do that type of work in our life. Um, let me pray. Lord Jesus, you said those that have been forgiven much, love much, and as Keller so wisely articulates, as he always does, 
Lord Jesus, you seek to humble us with the perfect love that God requires so that we will be willing to receive the love that you give us. Thank you that you, our righteous judge and Savior, not only perfectly fulfilled the law of God in every way, loving God and your neighbor without sin, but then you willingly went to the cross. Even after Pilate declared, I find no guilt in this man. And as you hung there being condemned between criminals, you prayed that your Father would forgive us, for we know not what we do. Help us to be melted by your mercy and then to seek to live differently for your glory in the freedom, in the freedom that we've been given. I pray in Christ's name, amen.